Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Changing Faith Podcast. This is episode 13. So we now have a baker's dozen on the podcast. And today, uh, I want to share some observations about being present, about being with each experience we are given and learn the importance together of being here and being present now, wherever and whenever here and now are. I want us to consider how we can live with a greater level of awareness moment to moment, because as we grow in this, we will become the kind of people who when we are with others and with our friends, with our family, when we're at work, when we're in a meeting, that we will be fully there. That we will be there in our bodies, we will be there in our minds, we will be there in our hearts. That we will be those who know what we feel, what we hear, what we see and taste and touch. A friend of mine once told me a story about a Buddhist monk who was asked what makes him different as a Buddhist. And he replied, I wake, I eat, I walk, and I lie down again. And so the person who asked the question said, "Um, well, I do that too, and I think pretty much everyone that I know does that too. And the monk replied, yes, but when I wake, I am aware that I have awoken. When I eat, I know that I am eating. When I walk, I know I am walking. And when I lie down, I am aware that I am lying down. This is a statement about presence. This is a statement about being fully connected to each and every moment life serves to us, knowing that the present, this very moment, right now, right here, that's all we ever have. And one thing I know for sure is that this is a discipline. Uh, And at least for me, it doesn't come naturally. Um, It's not something that I just normally veer toward. It's actually something I have to work very hard to to do and to practice and to exercise. And so uh, maybe this is true with you too. Uh, Have you ever noticed how often we struggle to remember where we were when something happened? Like we're telling a story about something that happened recently and we can't even seem to recall like when it was. And so you're saying, telling somebody about something, you're driving a car and somebody cut you off or you had this wonderful day um, outside and with your friends and you're like, and I, I think it was last Saturday, maybe this, no, I think it was two weeks ago that there's this mo- reality in which like we, we struggle even to remember when things happen because we struggle to actually be present in the very moments. And it's not just remembering when things happen, it's, it's even an awareness of where we are. I mean, suppose I asked you to describe in detail a restaurant that you visited recently. Could you do that? Like you went out for lunch with somebody or you went on a nice dinner date. Could you sit and describe all the things that you see around you in the restaurant? Did you remember actually physically being in that space? Or what if I asked you what your server looked like when you were at that restaurant? Did you look at that person? Did you look at their face? Could you recognize them 
if they were walking down the street. You see, I think if we're honest, for many of us, these details, they're just not there because when we were there, we were not there. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we, we just, we weren't fully engaged in our bodies and minds and our hearts because we struggle to be present. And I think we struggle to be present because there are so many things in our world today vying for our attention. Um, let me ask, how many of us live with our minds oriented toward the future? Maybe it's thinking about all the things you have to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. It's easy to do. Uh, we stand at the start of a new week, for example, and we go through our calendar and we think, oh my goodness, how am I going to get all of this done? I remember years ago when I was in college, I, we'd get the syllabus at the beginning of every semester and I would look through the syllabus and I would just be filled with this anxiety around how am I going to get all of this done? And, and that would occupy my mind for far too long, just this intensive thing in my head of my goodness, how am I going to do this? And we do this so frequently. We look at our future, we look at what is yet to come and we stress about it. We stress about preparing for a meeting. Who will be there? Uh, what will I say? What do they want me to say? Will they like what I'm going to say? Will I go too long? Will will I close the deal? Whatever it is, there's this all this energy that we give towards something that's not even there yet. I, I have a friend who who tells me that if he wakes up in the middle of the night, or if he's woken up in the middle of the night, he says it's almost impossible for him to go back to sleep. And what he finds himself doing is he rehearses the day in front of him because every night before he goes to bed, he looks at his calendar on his phone and looks at all of the things that he has to do in addition to all of the emails he knows he has waiting for him. And he told me most of the time when he wakes up in the middle of the night, sometimes like at 3 a.m., he said, I know I'm not gonna go back to sleep, so I just get up and begin sending emails to get a head start on the day. And so his days begin at 3 a.m. and he works on emails and then he, quote, begins his day a little bit later on because he can't extract his mind from the future. One of the things um, that I often hear from parents, maybe you're listening and you're a parent, is wondering about our kids. I mean, there's the world that they are growing up in today, and there's just all this kind of concern and worry, and are they going to be okay, and will they be safe? And then there's the projection down the road about their future and what kind of person they're going to end up being, and will they find a partner? Will they end up married? What job will they have? Are they going to make it? How long are they going to need my support? Will I ever stop worrying about them? All of these things crowd our minds to the extent that when we are in moments with our children, we can actually struggle to be present right here right now. We miss the moment that is right in front of us. See, all kinds of things pull our attention out of the present into the days ahead. Uh, maybe you're in a relationship and you're hitting a rough patch. You're hitting some bumps on the road. Well, is that relationship going to work out? And what if it doesn't work out? Will there be somebody else? Uh, maybe you're in a place 
where your financial future is uncertain and so you're constantly feeling stressed. Will we make ends meet financially? Maybe right now you're looking for a new job or maybe you're between jobs and you had an interview and you, you wonder nonstop, am I going to get that job? How did I do in the interview? Uh, is it a good idea to make that move? I have some friends right now who are talking about moving across the country and they're analyzing almost every single piece of it just wrapped up in whether or not it's a good move, wrapped up in the future, on and on and on. We have these things pulling us out of the here and now. And part of it, part of it's just the culture that we live in. I mean, we spend time before it's ever given to us. So in some ways, we're almost like always in debt to time because we're spending things that we haven't gotten. And so we make plans, we chart courses. It's like we live part of our lives in the moments that haven't arrived yet. Some of us do this as a way of escaping the present. I know for me, I'm somebody who can live comfortably in the future. Um, I can paint a picture of a preferred future, talk about what I hope happens, and live there as a way of escaping stress or, or pain in the present moment. But when we live like this, when we live oriented toward the future, when we live placing our minds there, well, we're going to end up being people who are filled with anxiety and worry and fear because we just can't seem to pull ourselves out of the future. And by the way, it's not just the future that seems to distract us. In much the same way, our past distracts us too. How many of us live with regret about the past? Um, one of the things that I love about my job and my work as a pastor is that I get to meet with so many people who trust me with their stories. And over the years, I've heard all kinds of stories, some that are completely unbelievable, stories that are stunning, uh, beautiful, tragic, painful, and one of the things that I've observed in meeting with probably at this point thousands of people, one of the most common and heartbreaking things are the many people who struggle so mightily to release the past. Uh, many of the stories that are told uh, aren't about things that have happened to, to, to someone, uh, events and circumstances that were beyond their control. There are, there are those people who've experienced wounding from somebody else. Um, but it's things that people are living with that they have done or that they have said to others. Uh, stories about choices that they made in the moment that, that seemed temporary, but what they didn't realize is that those things have an impact far beyond the moment in which those choices were made. And what I've observed is that these stories, these past choices, mistakes, failures, they become almost a controlling story for them. They become a controlling narrative for their lives. I see people who are filled with regret and they beat themselves up for it nonstop. One of, uh, there's, a, there's a person who is one of my closest friends for a long time and I watch him continue to do this to himself. Uh, for years now, he's beat himself up for the choices he's made. And the choices, I mean, I'm going to be honest, the choices were really, really poor choices. Uh, they're choices that hurt a lot of people. And yet, 
So many of those people that were wounded by his choices have forgiven him, have expressed forgiveness, have told him like, hey, we, we, we are open to and would like to pursue reconciliation. But what's interesting is he can't forgive himself. And every time I see him, I see someone who was just soaked in regret. And because of that, he struggles to be here and now because he can't seem to move beyond the mistakes that he made years ago. And so when he encounters somebody, he doesn't encounter them in the present. He encounters them still in the season around the choices that he made. And for, for others, maybe it's it, maybe even for you, it's maybe it's not that drastic. Maybe it's smaller things in day-to-day life. It's looking back and wondering whether we should have had that conversation with our friend. Maybe it's readily apparent to you, you missed an opportunity. Or, or maybe it's, we should never have bought this house. Uh, and, and you know what? It was actually a really stupid decision that we did this. Or maybe it's simply... Maybe it's just like wishing you'd gone to bed earlier because you woke up tired again. Whatever it is, it's these things tied to the past. And what I'm learning is that the enemy of being present is so often tied to our future and our past. It's tied to our constant struggle to pull away from anxiety, to pull away from regret and be fully here in this very moment. And as much as we've already talked about past and future, what if I told you there was actually no such thing as the past or the future? And I say that because this is actually what science is teaching us. Um, Albert Einstein wrote, the separation between past, present, and future is only an illusion although a convincing one. And so before I go any further, let me just say this. I do not claim to be a scientist, nor do I claim to be a physicist. Um, So this is um, armchair science coming at you. Um, But this is something that has captivated me, especially when it comes to helping us understand what it means to be present, to be aware, to be connected to where we are in this very moment. So with that said, um, let, me, let me just explain a little bit, uh, as I understand it, the reality of the world and the universe in which we live. Uh, in our world today, we experience time as moving in one direction, and that is forward. And so there is what's behind us, what's happened. There is what's ahead of us, what is yet to happen. And we are in that place between what is behind us, we call that our past, and what is ahead of us, our future. And that place that we are in between the past and future is now. And we assume that time moves forward, except that it, well, it doesn't, according to Albert Einstein, who, by the way, was a physicist and a scientist. Um, We are actually moving through time, Uh, but that's not all. And and here's why I say that, because time is not independent of space. Uh, Time and space are connected. It's something that scientists call space-time. 
cue the space music. I feel like I should have some sound effects going on while I'm talking about this. Okay, hang with me though, okay? Because we're gonna get, it's gonna get deep for a second and then hopefully at the end it'll make sense. Maybe it will only make sense to me, so maybe I should be listening to my own podcast. But hang with me, okay? We often think of time as something that exists on its own, independent of anything else. It's like all by itself as the fourth dimension, but it's not. Somehow, time, in ways that I can't even fully wrap my head around, even though I'm trying, somehow time is connected to space, and not just connected to space, but time is connected to our motion through space. And our motion through space is also connected to our motion through time. So, for example, if you are moving through space, the way that your motion through space or your movement through space is connected to your movement through time is that when you're moving through space, your motion through time slows down. And if you are completely still, if you are not moving through space, your motion through time speeds up. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're kicked back in your home or in your office and you're sitting in a chair, maybe you're snacking on something or you're sipping on a drink, water or beer, coffee or wine, whatever it is, you're sitting still. If you are still, as you listen to this, your movement through time is faster than somebody who is listening right now while driving a car. And if you're driving a car, or maybe you're listening while you're on a run, if that's the case, your movement through time is slower than somebody who's listening to the podcast while they are sitting still. Because our motion through space affects our motion through time. If you're moving through space, your motion through time slows. If you are still, your motion through time speeds up. So there was actually an experiment done on this in 1971. Uh, there were five atomic clocks that were perfectly synchronized. Now, if you know anything about the atomic clock, you know that it's based off of the vibration of cesium atoms, which vibrate 9,192,631,770 times per second, give or take, okay? Um, so atoms, um, when energized, have a natural frequency, and anything that has a repetitive motion, like a cesium atom, can be used to measure time. It can be a clock. And this clock is so accurate that they say it can be off by one second uh, over a hundred million years. By contrast, if you're wearing a watch and it's a quartz, quartz watch, um, that can be off by a second within about anywhere from three to six months. This is off by one second over a hundred million years. So they have five of these clocks in 1971. They are synchronized down to the billionth of a second. They put four of these atomic clocks on an aircraft and they had one that remained still in a laboratory. The four that were loaded onto a plane were loaded onto a plane that flew around the earth two times. I mean, this is an unbelievably extensive experiment. And the, 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 the hypothesis was this. If 
Motion through space slows time. That when those four clocks come back, they're going to be behind. They're gonna be slower than the clock that remains still because it was moving through time in a much faster way. And so what happened is they go around the earth twice, the plane comes back and the plane lands. And what they found was that the clocks on the plane were slower by like the smallest fraction of a second than the one that had stood still. What they proved was that because these clocks were on a plane traveling through space, that they experienced time as slower and recorded time more slowly because they were traveling through space and time, not just sitting on a counter in a laboratory moving only through time. And so while we understand time in a linear way, time just moving forward all the time, what science is teaching us is that time itself is not what it seems and it's actually not really the way that we experience it. What science is uncovering and discovering at the subatomic level is that past, present, and future are all just present. Past and future don't really exist as we know it. What exists is everything right now. So according to physics then, our idea of past, present, and future are not accurate. The past is not gone, and the future is not non-existent. All of it is here right now. And the idea of time being a flow forward, that also isn't real. That's, that's an illusion that somehow we live in. And so when you think about space and the dimension of space, you can move backward, you can move forward, you can move side to side, you can move in space. And science is saying, no, time works the same way. You can move through it, that there is a depth to it in, in, a, in a sense, so to speak, just like there is in space. So hold on to that for a moment, okay? Because we're gonna leave that and then we're gonna come back to it. So hold on to that whole idea. Movement through space uh, somehow slows your movement through time. And if you're standing still, your movement through time is faster. So hold on to that because we need to talk about light. And we need to talk about light because the combined speed of any object's motion through space and time, and it's, it is always precisely equal to the speed of light. Let, let me repeat that. The combined speed of any object's motion through space plus its motion through time is always precisely equal to the speed of light. So when you're sitting still and you're moving through time or when you're moving through space and time slows, you add those things together, you're always going to equal the speed of light because the speed of light is a constant. It is unchanging. So if you're moving through space, you're moving through time slows down and vice versa and the result of those is always equal to the speed of light, which means that somehow, uh, in, in ways that are, like just go way beyond my ability to explain on a podcast, uh, space and time, like they warp, so to speak. They bend depending on our movement through them. And they do this in such a way where we're always moving at the same speed. So I, I promise, by the way, this is going somewhere. Uh, it's, and it's all connected to being present. So stay with me, 
or maybe I should say, um, stay present, right? <laughs> so we're, we're always moving at the same speed. And so think of it this way, this idea of light being a constant. Imagine you and a friend are on the back of a large flatbed truck, one of those massive ones that they carry like the big uh, bulldozers on. You're on the back of one of those and the truck is going down a street at 10 miles an hour. And you are on the back of the truck standing there and you're throwing a football to your friend in the same direction the truck is moving and you're throwing that football at 10 miles an hour. Now, if I am on the side of the road with a radar gun and I clock how fast I experience the football moving, I will experience the football moving at 20 miles an hour. 10 miles an hour movement of the truck plus 10 miles an hour the movement of the ball, 20 miles an hour. So the truck speed plus the ball speed equals my observed speed. But if I were on the truck with you, I would measure the same ball moving at the same speed at 10 miles an hour because now I'm with you on the truck moving 10 miles an hour, which means that my movement affects my observed speed of the ball. If I'm still, it moves faster. If I'm with it, I experience it at 10 miles an hour because my movement and the truck's movement would somehow impact how I observe the measure, observe and measure the speed of the ball. But this is not how light works. No matter how fast you are moving, when you measure the speed of light, your movement has no impact on it. You will always find a constant speed of roughly 186,282 miles per second which breaks down to, or I should say builds up to, um, 670,616,629 miles per hour. That's the speed of light. And it's a constant, no matter what. But the same cannot be said of our experience with space and time. And so here's where I'm going to veer back toward presence. If our movement through space and time always equals the speed of light, then in theory, if we could move through space at the speed of light, time would slow to a total and complete stop. Because if we're moving at the speed of light through space and our motion through space and time always equal the speed of light, if we're moving through space at 186,282 miles per second, time stops. And so you begin to ask the question like, what, what, what would that be like? I mean, if time came to a complete stop. And scientists, uh, one way they describe this is by saying that we would actually see um, all of time, almost like slices of time, because time would stop moving. Our experience of time would mean time would stand still. And they, one of the examples uh, that I've read is they say like time would be like, a, like slices of bread. You would just be able to see all of these moments that exist and you would begin to realize that past, present, and future are all actually existing and that would be your now. Or another way of describing it is um, time would be like individual frames on a film reel that you would be able to see each individual frame, each moment, each second, almost laid out before you and recognize 
It's all there. We could see it all and we would experience it totally and completely differently. But of course, that's hypothetical, theoretical, because we would only know that or be able to experience that, right? If we travel at the speed of light or if somehow we became light. So let's move now from modern physics to ancient poetry. Because of course, that's the next logical step. That's exactly where you thought this whole thing was going, right? And I say ancient poetry because at the very beginning of the biblical narrative, there is a poem about God and God's creative work in fashioning the universe. We know this poem, for those of us in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we know this poem as Genesis chapter 1, but it's actually in the Hebrew language, it is a poem. And the poem talks about God's creative work, and it says that on the first day... God created light. That's the first thing that comes, that bursts into existence in the universe. And the rabbis have all kinds of commentary on this. And what's interesting is they talk about that this light came to be because God's presence radiated with the luster of his majesty throughout the whole world from one end to the other. Another rabbi says that light is and was the radiant splendor of the divine presence. This idea of light being the divine presence goes beyond just the opening verses that we see in the Bible in the poem about creation. Uh, When the people of Israel in, in the book of Exodus are liberated from slavery in Egypt, Uh, They're led out by Moses. They are told, God will be in your midst. And one of the ways that they know that God will be in their midst is that at night, they would experience God. They would see God as a pillar of fire. That his presence, God's presence to the people of Israel, was made known to them by light. That light is the radiant splendor of the divine presence. As the people of Israel um, leave Egypt, they, they wander in the wilderness for a time, and they decide, uh, invited by God, to build something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent of meeting. It's the place where they're going to go and worship. It's basically a portable temple. And in Exodus 13, there are very, very specific instructions given to the Hebrew people about how to construct the lampstand that will be in the tabernacle, that will be in God's tent, uh, and later the lampstand that will end up in the temple. Now, what's interesting is with all of the detail given, and there's a ton of detail given just about the lampstand. There's a ton of detail actually given about every piece of furniture and the curtains and the way the tent and everything else is supposed to be. But there's all kinds of detail given specifically about the lampstand. But the one detail that is conspicuously absent, that is not given, the one thing that there is not one mention of is the dimensions of the lampstand. There's nothing said about how tall it's supposed to be, nothing said about how wide it's supposed to be, nothing said about how thick it's supposed to be, nothing. Now, everything else that that is going to be in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle itself, 
every other piece of furniture, every curtain, every single little pole that's gonna be holding up the tent is given incredibly specific dimensions. They are told exactly how long, high, wide it's supposed to be. The lampstand is not given any. Why? Why does the lampstand not have any dimensions given to it? Well, because the lampstand which would have been the light in the tabernacle and later the light in the temple, represented for the people God's presence with them, God's presence in the temple. And the lampstand was to be burning. It was to be lit at all times because they understood that God is present whether we are in the tabernacle, whether we are in the temple or whether we are not. God is present at all times, whether we are aware of it or not. And there was this idea that emerged of like, and how do you measure God's presence? How do you measure light? Like you've never heard anybody talk about a sunrise and talk about how long it was or how wide it was. You don't hear people talking about giving dimension to light. And so there is no dimension given because well, this is God's presence, and the, the light is the radiant splendor of the divine presence. How do you measure that? The psalmist speaks about how God wraps himself in light, that there is a radiance to his presence. John, in his gospel, begins by referencing the Hebrew creation poem, and he speaks about life and light and the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. And what's interesting is that in John chapter one, what he's talking about there is Jesus coming to be present with us, that Jesus entering our here, Jesus entering our now. And he talks about that by saying, light is here. The imagery of God's presence in the person of Jesus that John chooses to use is light because light is a symbol of the divine presence. Over and over and over we see that light equals divine presence, which means uh, in a poetic sense, in a, in a metaphor sense, we might say that the divine presence is not encumbered or bound by time in the way that we are. So let's go back to this idea of time as slices of bread or times, maybe, maybe even better, as frames of film. Imagine if every moment of our life and all of time is in fact out there to be seen. Let's think about it this way. Let's think about our lives. Um, imagine your entire life was put on a film reel uh, and, and all the frames from your life are there in the projection room and you're in the theater. And so you're, you're going to watch your life on the screen. Your life is on a series of film reels. Uh, imagine if we're thinking about looking at time as, as film reels, as slices. Imagine that's what your life is. What frames, what frames that have already passed and entered the exit reel, what, what are the frames that you would want taken out? I'm sure you can immediately come up with all kinds of ideas of, oh, I, I know which, which frame I would want taken out. I know which moment of failure 
I would undo in a second. Uh, maybe you have an embarrassing story that every time it comes up, you know, because embarrassing stories, they're ne it's never enough that you have to go through it once. You actually go through it for the rest of your life. Every time you're with the people um, that were present when you were embarrassed, they have to bring it up. They have to remind you of it. They, you relive it over and over. What are those moments, those really miserable, embarrassing moments that are cringeworthy? What, what are those that you would remove? What about uh, past mistakes that you made? Uh, mistakes you made that, that hurt people. Mistakes you made that um, crippled a relationship. Mistakes you made that you just wish you could go back to that one moment and undo it. Poor choices. What about relationships? Are there relationships that you gave yourself to for a season, for maybe a number of years, and it ended so tragically and you think, oh, if I could just take that out if I could remove those frames, if those were never played, if I never saw that on the screen, man, it would be so much better. Maybe there are, maybe there are frames that are on the exit reel of your life, so to speak, that you, like, you love to relive them. You want to go back and, you, man, you would do those over in a second. You, you would relive those moments over and over again. But see, in, in the projection room, it's not just the film reel of the frames that have passed. It's also the film reel of the frames that have yet to play. And so what would be the frames you would love to take a sneak peek at? W which ones would you like to see? You want to know what's coming. Maybe, maybe it's what job you're going to get. Maybe it's uh, whether or not something is going to work out in a particular relationship. Maybe right now you, uh, you've been diagnosed with a disease and you want to know how is this whole thing going to shake out? Am I going to make it? Maybe you have a loved one uh, right now who's um, just shackled in addiction and cannot seem to beat it no matter how hard they try and no matter how hard you pray. And you just want to know, is everything going to be okay with them? Is it going to work out? I mean, I know I would... I'd want to review a lot of frames in the future. I really, really would. In some ways, people talk about like, well, you know, it's kind of like when you're given a life, uh, a diagnosis, and you have this many months to live that people really start living. Is that what we would do? Would we figure out like, oh, I'm going to die in like four years, and I'm going to make sure that I live these next four years to the full? Maybe in some ways it would motivate us. Um, maybe in some ways it would be disappointing. Like what if... What if you look at the, the frames ahead and you think, oh my goodness, I've, I've already lived the best parts of my life. Maybe it would be incredibly exciting. I, I, what would it be for you? Why? What would motivate you to go and look at these frames? You see, th this, this metaphor, this picture, this idea of us being in a theater watching our life play on a screen in front of us, all the while wishing that we were back in the projection room. Um, it, it's actually in so many ways really the way we live our life, isn't it? I mean, this is almost really what we do uh, day in and day out. We talked at the beginning of often feeling tied to regret about the past or living with anxiety about the future. It's like we can't even be present enough to watch the images on the screen in front of us because we want 
to be looking at the film reels in the projection room. But if light is the divine presence, then there is something to be said about a God who is always present here and now. There is something to be said about a God who was present in the midst of our worst moments and still is, and a God who will be present in all of the trials, in all of the glory, in all of the joy, in all of the despair our future holds. There's something to be said about a God who holds it all together, a God who holds each and every moment together because all of it, our entire lives, every frame, every slice, every mistake, every good decision, every terrible moment, every failure, every triumph, all of that are present to God right here, right now. And I wonder, does that bring us some sort of comfort? See, I talk with people all the time who say things like, where was God when? Where was God when? And I've had those moments. I've had so many moments of of struggle, of pain, of wounding. God, where are you? Where were you when? Why did you? And, And there's this reality that I'm waking up to more and more and more that God was right there in the midst of it. That when I was weeping, when I was angry, when I was shaking my fist, That God was there in a way that in those moments I was not able to see. That even when I worry about the future, there's this sense like, God will be there. God is actually already there. And perhaps this is something we can dwell on for a time. Maybe just that idea of God being what we would say maybe eternally present Uh, Maybe this will just help us take one step toward letting go of certain moments in our past we'd rather not remember. Maybe it will help us take one step toward surrendering the outcomes in the future, which, by the way, (laughs) we can't control outcomes. We can't control the future. Uh, And so maybe just this idea that, that God sees it all and holds it all together, maybe that, just dwelling on that, thinking about that, maybe calling a friend and sharing this idea with them, maybe that's just one step we can take toward being more present. Maybe this recognition is something that will help us be more alive and aware right here and right now. Uh, In the past, I've heard the term float around the church. Uh, People talk about living with an eternal perspective, I don't know if you've heard this. Like, we need to live with an eternal perspective. Uh, And so what's often meant by that, as I've understood it, is that living with an eternal perspective is an encouragement to look at the big picture, to look at the whole story, and look at all that is unfolding in it. And so you don't just get trapped here and now. Look at the whole long, big picture all at one time. And in some ways, that too can cause us to live lives where we're not very present because we're still looking ahead and we're still looking back. And I've begun to wonder, is it possible that an eternal perspective is simply living fully in this very moment? Maybe an eternal perspective is just being fully present right here, 
right now, allowing ourselves to be fully aware to what's happening on the screen in front of us and not getting distracted by the frames past and the frames yet to be seen on the reels in the projection room. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some, some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and turn even that agony into glory. He goes on to say that one day in the life to come, uh, when we ask people, what has your life been like? He said, everyone will say, oh, it's always been heaven. And heaven is the place where God's presence is fully realized. What has your life been like? Oh, it's always been heaven. Because even in the midst of our greatest hurts, our biggest mistakes, our most extreme failures, our eyes will be open to see that God was in fact present the whole time. Because the light shines, John tells us. The light shines even in the darkness, even in our darkest moments, even in the shadows that lurk within us, even the shadows that are unknown to ourselves at this moment, the light shines, the radiance of the divine presence shines. And John says, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the moments to which we lend anxiety and worry, the moments that pull us forward, the moments that cause us to get out of bed at 3 a.m. and start on emails, God's already present in those two, which means we can live lives little by little that are more free of worry, that are more free of anxiety, knowing God's already there. And so I wonder, what would it be like to live with greater awareness, moment to moment, knowing that we can, in fact, become the kind of people who, when we are with others, we will be fully there. We will be fully there in our minds, in our bodies, and in our hearts. That we will know what we feel and hear and see and taste and touch. And so we talk on the Changing Faith podcast about what, are, what, what is our next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? And maybe a next step for us is just taking a few minutes each day to be present. Just, just taking a moment. I have friends who I'm, I've learned this from over the years. My friend Steve he puts reminders in his phone. He puts, I think it's like three or four reminders in his phone every day. And he does them at times actually that he feels like are going to be the busiest times because that's the time when he's the least present. So he puts a reminder in his phone and it dings at him. I've been with him when his phone goes off and he, he stops everything. And he takes 60 seconds simply to breathe and simply to remind himself that he is a beloved son, a beloved child of the Almighty God. He stops everything. And he's talked about how in this practice, four minutes a day, four different times a day, what's actually begun to happen to his sense of being right here, right now. And when I'm with Steve, 
Uh, there's a joy and like a childlike wonder about him. And I always feel like when he's talking to me, I'm the only person in his world. So maybe that's something you can do. Maybe a next step is putting reminders in your phone. Um, one of the things that I do, I often leave, almost always leave this stereo off in my car. I don't, I don't drive around and play music. The reason I don't do that is because so much of life is noisy, isn't it? I mean, whether it's the billboards we're always driving by, the TV that we have on in the room that we're not in, the radio playing somewhere else, our phones texting and everything else. Just a little bit ago, you may have heard my phone ring because I forgot to mute it. It's just constant, constant, constant. So for me, when I'm in my car, turn the radio off, and I work on my breathing. That's it. That's what I do. I drive around and work on my breathing, which is a really good thing because... I often get really bothered by other drivers, so there's like some competition for my presence there. Um, I have a friend who's meditated for over 400 days in a row. I don't know why he's keeping track, but he is. Um, and it's interesting to watch how he's, his, his whole personality has evolved, that he is a much more peaceful person. This is a guy who was wildly competitive when I first met him, and I've watched him transform into this individual who just is like sucking the nectar out of every single moment. Maybe it's when you come home, maybe it's putting your phone down. Maybe it's when you go on vacation, it's turning your phone off. People say to me all the time, like, well, how do you turn your phone off when you're on vacation? I'm like, I don't know, press and hold the power button until it powers down. Just turn it off, leave it behind. Uh, maybe it's when you go out with your friends on Friday night, you all make an agreement. Hey, we're not gonna be those five people sitting at a high top table at a bar all on our phones and then go home and say it was great hanging out with each other. You didn't hang out with each other. You were on your phones. So maybe the next time you go out, you just propose this idea. All of us are putting our phones away. We're turning them off. We're going to be with each other. Um, Frederick Beekner, who's a brilliant writer, speaker, pastor, author, talked about, he, he was asked, what advice would you give to writers and to those who are creative? And he said, go for a walk every day. Do you go for walks? Do you go outside? And again, without your phone, walking slowly, just thinking about what am I smelling? What am I feeling? What am I hearing? What am I seeing? You see, there's, there's little things that we can do. And so maybe your next step is just asking yourself the question, what is one thing I can do? And the whole idea, well, I don't know if I have time for it. Yes, you do. We all do. We all have the same amount of time. What is the one thing you can do that will cause you to breathe, to slow down, to be present, to recognize that light is the presence of God? Because if we can slow down, if we can do this, we might just learn little by little by little how we can be more present in the moment, how we can be more aware of where we are and who we are. And in this, we just might learn to see, we might develop eyes to see the divine presence that, as Paul says in Colossians, the divine presence that is all and is in all, in our past, in our present, and in our future. So once again, I wanna say thank you for joining us on the Changing Faith Podcast. 
My hope is that this episode may be for you one step, a next step in learning to become more present and seeing the divine presence in all things. And so until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.